This is Mike Munger, the knower of important things. I'm a professor at Duke University in the Department of Political Science and the Department of Economics. How much does free stuff cost? Would you pay more for a shorter line? And does the fact that people differ in wealth and the opportunity cost of time make space for price discrimination? Also, twedge and this week's letter. Straight out of Creedmoor, this is Tidy C. I thought they'd talk about a system where there were no transaction costs, but it's an imaginary system. There always are transaction costs. When it is costly to transact, institutions matter, and it is costly to transact. Last week's letter from GG asked, I often think in transaction cost terms when it comes to the dollar hot dog night at the local ballpark. It attracts a longer than usual line, meaning higher transaction costs. At the usual price of $8 a dog, a $1 dog is a bargain. However, it doesn't capture the real cost. I hate waiting in lines, particularly on hard concrete where I'm shoulder to jowl and some of them intoxicated to boot with other people. Plus, I bought a ticket to watch the game, not stand in line. Now, I could grudgingly pay $8 for a hot dog, but that's because I have quite a few dollars in my pocket, say $100. I could easily get my fill of $8 dogs. However, if you were to give my ticket to a man with a few dollars in his pocket, say he only has $10, that $1 dog night is immensely more valuable. Even though to endure the negative utility of lines and the opportunity cost of missing the game, it might be worth it. Perhaps transaction costs are the ultimate way to price discriminate. End of letter. What a great letter. Obviously, in a way, it raises points we've all thought of, but there's some important issues that I've skipped over so far and that need to be addressed. A number of you have asked about my claim that to the consumer, all costs are transaction costs. My examples all monetize the cost of travel, lining up, risk, and inconvenience for a single person. And that's okay, because for a single person, it's useful to express all the costs in one metric, either converting everything to time or opportunity cost or to money. But it's wrong if you try to compare across individuals, and that's what this letter gets at. Money may be valued differently by different people based on willingness to pay or their budget constraint. Time and inconvenience, likewise, differ in value to different people based on exactly the same consideration. What is their time budget? What is the opportunity cost of their time? I'm relatively wealthy. So, of course, I want everything to be allocated by price. It bugs me if I'm driving around a city looking for a place to park. I would be happy to be able to pay $8, $10 an hour to park. I am reluctant to waste half an hour driving around looking for a free place to park. Now, many cities don't have free parking, but they still grossly underprice their parking compared to the marginal person who is looking for a parking space. Now, famously, the Monkey app in San Francisco tried to commodify parking. That is, you would see an open parking space, pull into it, and then put it up for auction. And they had a process where you would know the location. You would go and pay that person to pull out of the parking space so that you would then be able to pull in. But it was made illegal by the San Francisco authorities because it was felt that people didn't really own that parking space and so they couldn't sell it. So as a result, we have people driving around and around looking for underpriced parking. All this proves that there's a conversion between time and money. I always wonder if people overvalue free things. The joke at Duke is that our students will stand in line for two hours to get a free t-shirt when they already have a lot of t-shirts and they probably wouldn't pay $10 for that t-shirt. But paying 
waiting two hours is not a problem because the t-shirt is free. Well, as Gigi notes, free hot dogs, like free t-shirts, aren't free. As I've said before, Starbucks has surge pricing, but the way that it works is different from the surge pricing with Uber. If there's a surge, Uber raises fares. If there's a surge, Starbucks charges larger, longer lines. This does, just as GG notes, raise the opportunity for price discrimination. Now, price discrimination is charging different prices to different people based on their willingness to pay. So the sweet spot from the, the, the seller's perspective would be to charge the maximum price that each person would be willing to pay for every transaction that is more than the seller's marginal cost. So if the seller can produce something fairly cheaply, they still want to charge the maximum price that each person would be willing to pay. Well, they generally can't do that. In order to do that kind of price discrimination, you'd need two things. First, specific knowledge of each person's willingness to pay. You'd have to read their mind or somehow figure out what is the most that they would pay. Second, you would need some means of segmenting or separating the market so that people can't arbitrage away the difference in the secondary market. So if you charge low price to people who have a low willingness to pay, they were likely just to resell it to someone else with a higher willingness to pay and you lose that high value sale because of secondary markets. Most of the time, the seller can't tell the difference though between different people because I don't have specific knowledge of each person's willingness to pay. However, if you can come up with some low transaction cost way of getting that information and if you can make it expensive to resell the product so that the low-cost buyers can't just immediately resell to the people who will buy it for more, then you can engage in price discrimination. There are ways to do both of these things, to separate by demand and to prevent resale, but they involve transaction costs. A classic example was airline tickets. During the 1980s and 1990s, there were restrictions on access to low-cost tickets. Two weeks advance purchase and Saturday night stayover. So that wasn't perfect, but it separated business travelers and other high demand, economists would call them low elasticity because they're unresponsive to price and they'll pay more for tickets. Those high demand or low elasticity purchasers can be separated from the highly elastic purchasers that can decide when they want to go. They can stay over a Saturday night. They can plan far in advance. So you have, let's say, two groups, the low elasticity people that have to go at a particular time and they're going to come back either the same day or the following day, they can't stay over Saturday night, those people will pay a lot for the ticket because they're traveling on business. Discretionary travelers can plan farther in advance and they are happy usually to stay over a Saturday night. The result is that just by having those rules, you can get people to separate themselves, to identify themselves as low or high elasticity buyers. And remember, low elasticity means that I'm not responsive to price. High elasticity means I am responsive to price. Of course, you'd need to prevent resale, but airlines do that by checking IDs and pretending that it has something to do with security. Making sure that the person who bought the ticket is the one actually flying is key here, because otherwise 
otherwise someone could buy the ticket and then resell it. Think about it. There's no security reason to check that the person who bought the ticket is the one flying. Sure, you'd need to check the person flying against a database, but that isn't done until the day you fly already. The real reason to check IDs is to prevent resale. Of course, in the case of the Saturday night stayover, that doesn't matter so much, because even being able to buy one of the cheaper tickets, if it requires Saturday night stayover, wouldn't help that much. Price discrimination is also used in car sales. We negotiate to figure out how much you'll pay, or actually haggling of any kind. The transaction cost would be lower if I just listed a price and charged that to everyone. But I can get more revenue, even net, of the transaction cost of haggling if I start out with a ridiculously high price and then try to gauge, is the person in a hurry? Are they going to fight or maybe even walk away rather than pay this price? I can get more revenue, even net, of the transaction cost of haggling by charging a negotiable higher price. Coupons, age discounts, loyalty programs, all of those impose a transaction cost barrier to charge lower prices to some people. And remember, price discrimination is charging different prices to different people based on their willingness to pay or their elasticity. A lot of the people I end up charging a low price would not otherwise have bought anything at all if I only charged the high price. So you could cut the overall price in order to get more sales to those people, but it's better to charge high prices to the people who are willing to pay and low prices to the folks who would not otherwise buy that product or service so long as the price is still above your cost of making the thing. Well, that brings us to the hot dog example. It's a perfect illustration of using transaction costs to segment a market. Note, resale would still be possible, and that's actually interesting. Let's break it down. Well, to start with, I did some checking. The regular price of a large Dodger dog in Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles is $21. So I have a question. What is wrong with you people? in California. Let's stick with the average price of full-size hot dogs at Major League Baseball stadiums, which is $8. Most people don't pay that $8 for a hot dog, or if they do, it's at most one. Many do. That's why that hot dog is sold at that price. There's people who are willing to pay $8 for a hot dog. Let's say it costs 75 cents for the food inputs and labor at the margin, because the margin here is important. You already have the stuff in the cooler. You already have the employee. You just have to put it together and sell it. So the difference in your costs between selling or not selling one additional hot dog, let's say, is 75 cents. You want to keep selling most of the time at $8 to the people who will pay. But you'd also like to be able to sell massive amounts of that same dog to the people who would only pay a dollar because you're still making a quarter on each dog. And you may sell more tickets on dollar hot dog night because hot dogs and baseball tickets are compliments. That is, they go together. I might attend the game on dollar hot dog night when I otherwise might not go at all. So... The, this is a genius idea because people self-identify as high and low elasticity buyers. They self-identify. They sort themselves. People who are responsive to money price but are willing to spend time will queue up for the $1 hot dogs. But that's a 20-minute line. And of course, there's going to be a limit on the number you can buy, maybe two at a time, because otherwise people would buy 100 and resell them. So like I said before, you would have to prevent someone from going and 
buying a hundred of the hot dogs at a dollar and then just setting up their own secondary market of selling hot dogs for five dollars for people who don't want to have to wait in line. The vendor is using queuing as a rationing device. Now it may be that for a good hot dog the cost of food inputs could be a dollar twenty or more, but we get more people to buy tickets. So in the case of dollar hot dogs, that might even be a little bit below their marginal cost, but they're still willing to do it. The interesting question is, imagine two adjacent hot dog stands at a crowded ballpark, one selling $8 dogs and one selling dollar dogs. They're the same hot dog. Well, a line forms at the $1 dog line. Question is, does anybody buy any hot dogs from the $8 stand? The answer is certainly yes, I would. In a crowded stadium, having dollar hot dogs with just one person working there, and it takes a little while to fulfill each order, is likely to result in a line of 30 or 40 minutes. I would certainly pay an extra $7 to avoid a 40-minute line. So if the line is long enough, you're going to see people make decisions at the margin between the extra monetary cost or the extra transaction cost of queuing up for a cheaper hot dog. It's not just price, in other words, that reflects cost. People sort themselves into either the type of person who will pay money to avoid the long line or the type of person who will pay time to avoid the high price. What's interesting is realizing that stores and sellers can use transactions costs to segment the market in just the same way. Consider two grocery stores within a mile of each other. Each has some loyal customers, but they want to compete for the price elastic customers who are looking for low prices. They could cut their prices, but then they'd be losing money on the loyal customers who will shop there no matter what. What they want to do is cut prices only for the price conscious, the price elastic customers. So they use transaction costs to create a separate dimension. You could imagine the meeting where they first were trying to think of ways to do this. Uh, okay, I'm getting an idea. People have to stand outside in the hot sun and we will have some guy throw pine cones at them and hit them in the head with pine cones for five minutes and then they get a lower price. Or people have to sing a song and then eat a bug to get the lower price. Well, neither of those caught on. What did catch on was almost as silly when you think about it. You have to go to some paper source, something pretty inconvenient, and then go find scissors, cut out that part of the paper, and take that with you to the store by a certain date, and remember to present it to the cashier to get access to the lower price. Well, those are called coupons. Some of the loyal customers will do this, but many will just pay the higher price and not think about it. But all of the price elastic customers are willing to do this because they're willing to pay time to get the lower price. So, those little pointless pieces of paper are called coupons. They play the same role as the long line on dollar hot dog night at the ballpark. You sort buyers. You sell at a lower price to the folks who would not have paid the higher price anyway without cutting the high price to the people who would have bought the thing at the high price in the first place. What's really cool about thinking in terms of transaction cost is that you come to understand things you hadn't even noticed were a puzzle in the first place. It seems like the other grocery, remember there's a competitor grocery only a mile away, seems like they would have to start printing coupons of their own as a way of competing for those price-conscious customers. Remember, they can't cut their prices overall or they'll lose the revenue from the loyal customers. They only want to compete at the margin for the price-conscious customers. Do they have to print their own coupons? Well, no. 
They don't have to pay to put coupons and flyers or in the local paper. There's a lower transaction cost way of doing the same thing. All they have to do is put up signs saying, we accept coupons from our competitors. That does two things. First, it means that the competitor doesn't have to pay the cost of printing and distributing the coupons because the first store is already doing that. But second, notice it also reduces the incentive for the other, the other store to start this coupon-cutting price war in the first place. Why be the chump and pay for the coupons when there's no benefit because your competitor is just going to accept the coupons too? In the last decade, stores have solved this problem by having customers identify themselves through electronic records and loyalty programs, like Harris Teeter's VIC program, Very Important Customer, VIC. The coupons and discounts are contingent then on being a member of the loyalty program. Some stores, like Costco, have made it a two-part tariff, where you pay a $120 annual member fee and then you get discount prices on everything. Amazon, for example, has Prime and Walmart has Walmart Plus. The point is that the imposition of transaction cost as a rationing device can benefit the seller. That is, increasing transaction cost strategically can benefit the seller because it enables market segmentation and allows you to price discriminate. It does raise an important question. This increases the profits of the company, but it's a transfer from consumers, and some of those costs are then dissipated as deadweight losses, time spent clipping coupons or standing in line for no real economic reason. Is price discrimination a good thing? How would we know? Well, more on this question in a future episode. Well, that sound means it's time for Twedge. This economics joke was suggested by PG. Story is that the bidding at a local auction house was proceeding furiously when the auctioneer interrupted the proceedings and announced, A gentleman in this room has lost a wallet containing $10,000. If it is returned, he will pay a reward of $2,000. And immediately, someone at the back of the room shouts, 2250! Well, this connects to the discussion that I had with Russ Roberts about finding a wallet. I'll put up a link to that Econ Talk episode. It is interesting to think in terms of what we would pay to do the right thing, or implicitly, the amount that we would have to be compensated to do the right thing, to give up some benefit from ourselves. And what I like about the joke is that it raises the question of the boundary between the things that are properly part of commercial transactions and which we should think of as being social relations that are insulated from commercial transactions. Well, this week's letter is from... BR. And BR sent this to the podcast email, which let me remind you is taitc.email at gmail.com. That's taitc.email at gmail.com. BR said, minimizing transactions cost has been captured in many sayings. A stitch in time saves nine. Look before you leap. The lesser of two evils Don't put all your eggs in one basket. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. A bird in the hand is worth more than two in the bush. It all seems like common sense economics. However, the problem is they're all true until they aren't. 
the conditions where the assumptions no longer apply, after which you can say, well, it didn't make sense in the first place. That's where economic theory overturns common sense. So the question that BR raises is the trade-offs between what may be contradictory imperatives about conventional wisdom. Well, thanks for listening. We'll work on that puzzle, have another hilarious twedge, and more next week on Tidy Sea.